The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. This morning, we are going to, uh, if you've seen the program, uh, the bulletin, whatever we want to call it, uh, our, our title for this morning is Toward a Theology of Disability. Toward a Theology of Disability, and we chose that now, uh, particularly with Phil being and Jamie being gone today, but it does tie in, sort of, to uh, the Exodus uh, series that Phil is going through. But it's, it's timely, I think, for reasons you'll understand as, as we go. So I want to thank Caleb and the musicians that are up here uh, week after week and uh, serve us so well in leading us in praise and worship and song to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I think you'll agree that songs we sang today and so many others that uh, it tells we're filled with his goodness and we're lost in his love. just leads us so well. It is worship in itself and leads us to worship and leads us to the truth as we turn to scripture, which we'll do this morning. One of the hymns we sang this morning, like many hymns we sing in this church anyway, take on a much deeper understanding when we realize that the authors of those songs, as they are praising God in their writing of them, were disabled. Fanny Crosby, who wrote Blessed Assurance, we just sang, and other songs, "Glory uh, To God Be the Glory, and some 8,000 other hymns, was blinded for life at the age of just six weeks uh, by an incompetent physician, certainly she had a right to be angry, and yet she's play, praising God in her disability. Others, Kate Hanking, who wrote I Love to Tell the Story, wrote that song during a serious illness that left her bedridden for over nine months. And William Cooper, who wrote songs like There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, suffered from a mental illness and deep depression that took him near to the point of suicide on multiple occasions. And yet, in his, even in his struggles, even in their struggles, they praise God for who he is. These are just three of our most admired saints, really, as they struggled through their disability and other debilitating illness. And God has used them to bring about his perfect will, not only in their lives, but in the lives of countless others. And I would suggest us, every time we sing their words, which are God's words, they're all scriptural, but they help lead us in praise as well. Um, you think of reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther suffered from debilitating Meniere's disease, which was really troublesome. Helen Keller, of course, was stricken with an illness at 19 months, very probably scarlet fever that left her ble- de- uh, blind and deaf. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who we quote often, was known as the Prince of Preachers, suffered from deep, depressive episodes. And in our day, Phil mentioned it last week, apologist. Uh, Justin Peters, who many of us know from Shepherd's Conference, was born with cerebral palsy. Pastor and author Tim Challies, who is one of the two uh, blogs I read every morning, uh, was uh, stricken not that long ago with an excruciating nerve condition that requires the aid of someone else uh, to help him write his blogs or now dictating programs just to get through. And he's also pastoring a church at the same time. And, of course, there's Johnny Erickson Tata, new and near and dear to our hearts, who has been confined to a wheelchair now for more than 50 years and yet has blessed the lives of thousands through the ministry of Johnny and friends. We know and we're familiar with these because they, are, they have a certain amount of notoriety. They're in front of us all the time. And yet there are countless thousands of unsung heroes of the faith throughout the ages, some right here in our church, that God has used and is using, not in spite of their disabilities, as if somehow that was a detriment to God's work, but rather through their disabilities as instruments in the hands of a sovereign God. And the fact is, as we sit here today, there are many among us of all ages who have significant special needs, both seen and unseen, for which we, as their brothers and sisters in Christ, have the opportunity and indeed the responsibility to help meet in any way that we possibly can. And disability may seem away from you possibly, it may not touch you, and yet I promise you that it does, and it will. It's an important issue to all of us, since if we live long enough, we will all become disabled in some way, either by illness or accident or through the natural process of aging and any other number of things. 
besides my glasses. So the question we want to ask ourselves this morning is, are you and are we collectively, as the Church of Jesus Christ, a welcoming church for those with disabilities and their families? Those who may come here and do come here, searching for a church that will welcome them without hesitation, accepting them for exactly who God has created them to be, willing to care for them, to accommodate their needs, to worship side by side with them as we do anybody else. Are we that church? Are you that brother and sister in Christ? And I can tell you from experience that there are many families touched by disability who rarely, if ever, attend church for a variety of reasons. Some, it's just too difficult to leave the house. And in those cases, are we as a church standing by and ministering to them in their homes? Some church facilities are simply not accessible enough, which has at times been coupled with that church's inability, or even, I know of times, when an unwillingness to adapt the church to the needs uh, of the people that would seek to be there and be part of their congregation, a member of their family. Others have felt misunderstood, unwelcomed, and even singled out as different, and believe it or not, even asked to leave the church. We have friends that have asked to leave church five times. Five times, one family. And most unfortunately, some have been confronted with the church and even outside the church with a discouraging and unbiblical theology that holds them responsible for their disability, chastising them with the mistaken belief that if they only had enough faith, they would be healed. If you haven't thought about that, Jared has gone through this many times. Here, in other places, Starbucks, Bible studies away from here. Put yourself in that position just for a moment. What would you think of your faith? What would you think of your God? And what would you think of that church? We don't want to be that church, Gold Country. We must not be that church. So with that in mind, how should we respond to the Lord's mandate to love and care for all his people without reservation, without hesitation, without fear, as evidenced by our Lord Jesus Christ himself? Now, we certainly can't do that, obviously, in one sermon, as long as I might go, and uh, uh, at least not on one Sunday. So today we're going to begin with this concept of towards a theology of disability. What we want to do, this is not a how-to sermon, it's a why-to sermon. If we understand the why, the how comes easily right behind it. This is foundational, and that's what we want to talk about this morning. The word theology simply means the study of God, and today we're going to try to understand the disability from God's perspective, because that must be our perspective. Because that is where it begins. It doesn't begin at all with those with special needs. It doesn't begin with us or even the church. It begins in the heart of God. So why today? Uh, Partially uh, because we will, Sue and I will be flying out on the 27th of this month uh, to the Dominican Republic to lead a team of short-term missionaries with Johnny and Friends with Wheels for the World, so timeliness was good. And in that, we have with us Roberta Dunn and her son Todd. Roberta is the new director of the Sacramento Johnny and Friends. And so we invite you once we're done to see the table and meet them in the back uh, in the foyer when we're done. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look, we're going to consider our right response to disability in three ways. The first is God's grace towards disability in the Bible, because that is our example. Two, God's high view of human life, because that is our foundation. And three, God's sovereignty over disability, because that is our assurance and our hope. We don't have any one uh, passage from Scripture. The the Second Corinthians uh, 4 passage before speaks well already. But just as kind of our theme verse, we're going to be all over Scripture this morning, but our theme verse really is Luke 2.10. And we know it. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Before we go on, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for who you are. We thank you for who you are. We worship you as a creator God, the the creator and sustainer of all life, the lover of our souls, the provider of our salvation. 
Lord, we come to you this morning with open hearts, open minds, Lord, we pray, to hear what you have to tell us from your scripture, uh, not just in dealing with disability, but all struggles, and what our responsibility is, are as, as your chosen ones and as your church. So we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds and just how we are doing and how we can do it better. So, Lord, we give you our time right now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first point, if I can make it all work. There we go. Is God's grace and mercy towards those with disability. Again, this is our example. In the Old Testament, we read that Moses, and this ties us back to Phil's series on exit, from the Exodus. In fact, he talked much about this last week. We read that Moses struggled from some type of speech impediment. We don't know exactly what it is. We just know it was real. And in his fear, really, of facing Pharaoh, he complained in Exodus 4.10, Oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. So with that, God sent Moses' brother Aaron, who was already on the way, if you remember the story, to speak for him, evidence, first of all, that God does bring others alongside the disabled to help them serve and to live out their lives. It also tells us that God does not dismiss the, uh, the disabled in terms of service. He uses them, as he does all his servants, through his power. You remember what God said. He said, I will be your mouth. I will be Aaron's mouth. This is God's power working. Probably the most notable is Mephibosheth, who beyond having a name that is difficult to pronounce, was the son of Jonathan, of course, King David's best friend, grandson of King Saul. 2 Samuel 4.4 tells us that Mephibosheth fell or might have been dropped by his nurse at age five, leaving him disabled in both feet. That is what your Bibles tell you. And God showed him grace and mercy through King David. After uh, David becomes king, he sought out relatives of, King's, uh, relatives of King Saul that might be left that he didn't know were out there. In the day, normally that would have been, because that was the prior dynasty, he would have brought him in and potentially killed everybody so there was no rightful heir to the throne from King Saul. But that's not what David does. No, he calls him to himself and he, and he shows him loving kindness for the sake of his friend Jonathan. And with that, Mephibosheth was brought before the king, probably fearing for his life, and rightfully so. But in an act of loyalty, in an act of friendship, in an act of compassion, David greets him with open arms. And even in a society that would typically have shunned him, David didn't dismiss Mephibosheth because of his disability, nor did he recoil from caring for him and loving him. Instead, David welcomes him to his table, not as a guest... But as 2 Samuel tells us, like one of the king's sons. So twice in in, uh, 2 Samuel 4 and a second time in 2 Samuel 9, Samuel mentions that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet, which is curious because it really isn't critical to the story. I mean, it's obviously critical. The Holy Spirit put it there. But in and of itself, if it was left out, David's uh, kindness would still be obvious. But it's, uh, it, he puts it, I think he puts it there as if we are to take notice somehow. I really believe that. Because this very special relationship between Mephibosheth and David serves as a vivid metaphor for the kingdom of God, where the abled and the disabled sit together side by side as family at the king's table. And remember that Acts 13 tells us that as a representative of Christ, that David was a man after God's own heart. Examples in the New Testament include the Apostle Paul, who we know had the infamous thorn in the flesh. We don't know what that was. But Galatians 4 tells us that he also suffered from some type of chronic eye problem as well. And conjecture is probably from the road to Damascus experience with when the Lord appears to him and he's blinded for three days. And he may well have carried out that through the course of his life. And of course, there were the many, the crowd, who flocked to Jesus in the hope of being healed. They were often the downtrodden, they were marginalized, they were despised often and ostracized by their family, friends, and even the religious leaders as sinful, as defiled, and as unclean. But in Jesus, they found a heart of love 
a heart of compassion, hope, and healing. You remember blind Bartimaeus and his companions on the road to Jerusalem in Mark 10, who even as the crowd is trying to silence them as an unwanted annoyance, still they cried out to Jesus for mercy. Calling him the son of David, they understood who he was. And Jesus, out of compassion, now he's on his way to the cross, but still, out of compassion, out of love, Jesus stopped. He calls Bartimaeus and his companions to himself. And he ultimately heals them. And my friend, in a spiritual sense, I want you to consider that story. Because if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, at some point in time, in your spiritual disability, Jesus stopped for you. And he saved you. He healed you for all eternity. And there was the woman in Luke 8 who had suffered from a bleeding issue for more than 12 years. No doctor could help her. A malady that made her ceremonially unclean. A woman no one would dare touch for becoming unclean themselves. And in desperation, she reached out to Jesus and touched his robe, thinking, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Not only did Jesus accept her touch, he welcomed it. And because of her faith, he healed her. Friend, that reminds us of the importance of the compassionate touch of a friend. Jesus was never afraid to touch or to be touched, not even by those who were considered by society to be untouchable. In Luke 5, we read of the man full of leprosy who had come to Jesus begging to be healed. You remember he said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Verse 13 tells us that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And again in Mark 7, we read of a man brought to Jesus who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and Jesus touched his ears, and he touched his tongue, and his ears were opened, and his tongue was released. And although not related to disability, we take notice in John 13 how Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Washing the feet of another was a lowly and dirty job normally reserved for the lowest of saves. And yet Jesus, as an example of love, humility, selflessness, and servanthood, washed their dirty feet with his own hands. And he calls on his people and his church to lovingly and humbly do the same. Verses 14 and 15, Jesus told his disciples, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. You also should do just as I have done to you. Sue and I have experienced this firsthand on our mission trips to the Middle East and to Brazil and to Guatemala with Wheels for the World. If you don't know, we, the wheelchairs are sent there. We, our mechanics rebuild them. We fit them. By our, they're fit to, a, a, to each individual person that comes by seating therapists. And then we distribute wheelchairs to children and adults of those who have been disabled for many causes, birth defects and disease, accidents, from war, particularly when we're in Mafrak, up near the Syrian border, and even a man shot, stabbed, and left for dead by one of the drug cartels in Guatemala. These are the people that the Lord brings to us. Our wheelchair and mechanics often serve while sitting in the dirt and on a dusty floor, handling the very often dirty feet and legs of those who come before us. And all the while doing so, we share the gospel. Their gratefulness is evidenced by their smiles. Women in burqas, where you can see only their eyes, the tears flowing, the appreciation for what we've done, whether they really understand what we're doing in the love of Christ or not. We trust them to the Lord in that. And, of course, we are tremendously blessed as well. Friends in the church, we in the church, are the hands and feet of Jesus on earth until he comes. And as his hands, we must not be afraid to engage. We must not be afraid to touch, to encourage, and to minister to both physical and spiritual need of all those God brings before us. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of those in need, we must put aside whatever presuppositions we have. We must put aside our fears. We must put aside our discomforts to willingly and lovingly serve 
everyone, including those with special needs, even as Jesus did. As part of this, consider the fact that Jesus washed the feet of all his disciples, and that included Judas, who was about to betray him. And, of course, the Lord knew that. That is the love of Christ uh, that we are to portray. In Luke 7, we see Jesus heal even the, the slave of a Roman centurion. Luke 8, we read of a Jairus, a ruler in the synagogue, who may well have been opposed to Jesus at this point. Because of his love for his daughter who is dying, he comes to Jesus and begs Jesus to heal her. And even, even though the young girl dies before Jesus gets there, still out of compassion, Jesus ultimately raises her from the dead, showing us how Jesus had compassion for all, which is a major theme in the Gospel of Luke, by the way. Luke, who himself was a Gentile, not a Jew, reveals the compassion for Jesus towards everyone, Jews and Gentiles, men, women, children, the elite, the ordinary, the marginalized, the able and the disabled, because that is why he came. And that is why he sends us. As we celebrate Christmas, we read the passage we mentioned before in Luke 2, how an angel proclaimed to the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great tidings of great joy that will be for all the people. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, and in his grace and mercy, Jesus extends the call of the gospel to all. Matthew 28, and again in Mark 16, we find the Great Commission to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. The Gospel of Luke includes in that mandate the call to the church to reach out in the name of Christ to the disabled community. Luke 14, 12 to 24 is the parable of the great banquet. And that is the battle cry of ministries to the disabled, particularly to Johnny and friends. Now, although in context, we always want to keep things in context. In context, this parable is not specifically about, the dis- about disability. But still from it, we get a glimpse into the kingdom of God, the heart of God, and the expecta- expectation of God for the hearts of his people. Verse 13 says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. And verse 21 tells us that we are to go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring, to, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, and compel the people to come. That's that much short of forcing them to come. Compel them to come. They have care here. They have love here. They have answers here in the church, in the gospel. As was typified by David's graciousness to Mephibosheth, and now at the great banquet, we see in the words of Jesus himself that there are no exclusions in the kingdom of God. All of God's people are invited. They are welcomed. They are fed at the king's table. Therefore, all must be invited, welcomed, and fed in the king's church. Throughout the Bible... Wherever we find those in need, we find the compassionate heart of Christ, of God in Jesus Christ. Throughout the Gospels, we read in Mark 8, Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they had not eaten, so he fed them. He had compassion on the sick, the blind, and the lame, so he healed them. Matthew 9, 36 tells us that Jesus had compassion on the crowd because they were harassed, they were helpless, They were like sheep without a shepherd, so he gave himself to be their great shepherd. Jesus had compassion on the lost and those in need, and we are to have that same heart. Colossians 3.12, you know it well. Call on each one of us to put on, then, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And out of our compassionate hearts, then, We are to reach out to the disabled, to compel them to come, and then welcome them, include them, care for them, and love them for the sake of those in need, for the sake of the church, but overall for the sake of Christ. Because all human life is precious to the Lord. In 1984, President Ronald Reagan proclaimed January 22nd of that year National Sanctity of Human Life Day. This day was set aside 
in response to the abortion epidemic that, despite the overturning of Roe v. Wade, continues and will continue, especially here in California, where those seeking abortions are not only welcome, they are invited to come. And I'm sure you're aware by now, but our governor used the precious word of God to make that invitation on the billboards. Mark, he quoted Mark 12, 31, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. He forgot the first one, didn't he? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. And so that is out there. How unfortunate it is that our world, our nation, our state, even some churches misrepresent, ignore, or even subvert the biblical teaching that all human life is dignified and sanctified by God. So what does it mean to have a theology of disability? What, what does, why is that important to us? What does all of this, what does the sanctity of life thing have to do with the theology of disability? And the answer is everything. It's everything. The proper theology of disability begins with a high view, God's view, of the sanctity of all human life. Now, I'm not a politician. I abhor politics. And I know this is a politically charged issue. But when we come right down to it, I believe that we in this country, in this state, have a truly hypocritical view of the value and sanctity of life. On the one hand, many in this country worship their rights. Yes, we worship them. And the woman's right to choose. The woman's right to have to her own body. And at the same time, denying the right to live to the unborn who have no choice. As it relates to disability, on the one hand, we have the ADA, the Americans for Disabilities Act, that prohibits discrimination based on, the disability, on disability, and in many ways it has done that. But at the same time, one of the societal and medical answers to reducing or eliminating disability is abortion. Studies vary widely as to the prevalence of abortion following a prenatal diagnosis of disability. However, a March 2022 report, current, from the U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee estimates that 60 to 90 percent of children with a pre-born diagnosis of Down syndrome are aborted, and that's compared to 18 percent of all other abortions. In Denmark, it's 95 percent. In Iceland, it's 100 percent. And that concerns only pre-diagnosis of Down syndrome. What might happen that being able to diagnose Down syndrome in utero is common. Uh, and but other th- autism and other types of disability, we can't do that. What happens if we ever had that option with other disabilities? What might that result in? But the sanctity of life issue with disability is not limited to abortion. Many of you know our son Jared was born with spina bifida. We were told on the day of his birth that he would be paralyzed and have others, sundry other medical issues, and we were not prepared to hear that. We didn't know beforehand. Nor were we prepared for what came next. The doctor took me aside. Sue was still in surgery. Took me aside and said, when you get to Redwood City, we had to take him there for his first surgery. The doctor is going to give you the opportunity to not have surgery. And I asked why. He said, so the spinal meningitis will set in and kill your child. I certainly wasn't prepared for that. And I know of families where the doctor didn't give them the choice, but refused to have surgery, and the child did indeed die. Ours is only one of many similar stories. We personally know of a young woman with Down syndrome who had been denied a life-saving heart-lung transplant by a major university hospital solely on the basis of her disability, even though she was living independently, was able to drive, and was holding down a job, although I would submit to you those are not reasons. Thankfully, a protection and advocacy group and a video by Sue took up her cause, and the surgery was approved, and indeed she had that surgery. I read an article several years ago of a man named Chris who, was, who had been admitted to a hospital suffering for a debilitating neurological disorder. Chris was totally competent in mind. 
and expressed a desire to receive necessary life-sustaining treatment, and yet hospital administration initially refused based on his condition. There are many, many more examples we could cite, and we haven't even talked about the fact that California is one of 11 so-called right-to-die states where doctor-assisted suicide is legal and how that might in some way affect the disabled community. I want to stop here for a moment to acknowledge, and I think we all know those, even in our own congregation, who have gone through uh, situations of abortion. Our family has. Yours might have. Maybe those here. So we want to stop and acknowledge that those who have found themselves in these oh-so-difficult decisions to choose an abortion or to deny medical treatment rarely intend to be heartless or cruel. And remember that these circumstances happen in Christian families as well, in our family. Many, even most, of those who have had to make these agonizing life and death decisions have done so in the moment with what seemed best. But we take heart, knowing that regardless of the circumstance, our Lord is always ready to forgive, always ready to comfort, always ready to care, as we in the church must be without judgment. We are not to stand back and cast stones, but rather we are to come alongside them, loving, loving them, supporting them emotionally and spiritually. That is what God has called his church to do. We've already seen from Colossians 3.12 that we are to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And these situations are no different. And from Galatians 6.2, we are to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And that we want to be. We want to be that loving church that God calls us to be. We want to be not a sanctuary state for abortion, but a sanctuary of love and concern and care and gospel for those people that need to hear and need to be cared for. What we need to understand, kind of putting all this together this morning, is that uh, life, born or pre-born, must never be determined by a perception, and that is what it is, of what a person might contribute to society or what is considered to be quality of life. Because these are, these are two reasons we hear often. What is this, what's this baby going to contribute? Uh, what kind of quality of life will they have? Both of these terms are subjective. It means that what I deem, if I'm doing the judging, what the world deems or what culture deems to be valuable is the standard for what is truly valuable. The world might think that being blind diminishes one's quality of life. And yet hymn writer Fanny Crosby wrote this, If perfect earthly sight were offered me tomorrow, I would not accept it. I might not have sung hymns to the praise of God if I had been distracted by the beautiful and interesting things about me. You might think that being confined to a wheelchair for more than five decades would cause a person to feel slighted in life. And yet Johnny Erickson Tata has said many times that she would never trade her intimate relationship with Jesus for the ability to walk. She wrote this, My wheelchair, more than anything else, has become the theology textbook that has shown me so much about the sustaining grace of God. Their testimony, the testimonies of so many others, show us that all lives must be treated with respect and dignity, for all life emanates from and is sustained by God. Therefore, all human life has intrinsic value. And this is where a proper theology of disability begins, and that the sanctity of human life. And that begins with the fact that all men and women are created in the image of God. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn with me to Genesis 1. Because when we, when we speak of the sanctity of life, we mean that all human life has been sanctified by God. That is, mankind has been set apart and is distinct from the rest of his creation. We won't read the whole chapter. You know it well. But when we consider, if you go through with me here, when we consider the sanctity of life, consider these things, that it's from Holy Scripture. This is inspired Scripture from the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, we read, And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And with amazing creative, creative power, God simply spoke light into existence. And that is God's pattern for the first five days of creation. 
All things God spoke into existence by the power of his word, and God declared it good. But then we come to verse 26, and we read this. And remember, the little words in Scripture mean a lot. And this first one, then. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. As we read that, it feels like God paused the creation narrative to draw attention to what was to come next, that man would not be like the rest of his creation. And that is made clear to us in Genesis 2-7. God doesn't speak man into existence as he does with the rest of creation. Instead, he formed the man of, of dust from the ground. So what it's picturing for us, metaphorically, is God reaching down and shaping man with his own hands. And then after forming man into a special creature that God was intended him to be, God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Now, all living creatures are given life by God, to be sure, but only man was given God's own breath of life. The Hebrew word for breath here is ruach, and it means wind or spirit, and it is describing an eternal soul. And then God created woman out of man, and she too... uh, Uh, And she too bears the image of God. She too has an eternal soul. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply, to reproduce of their own kind, children who would also bear the image of God. And God said it was what? Very good. We see further evidence that God set man apart from the rest of creation in Genesis 2, where he prepares for them a garden. And he places them in the garden, and he gives them dominion, which is rule over all of the rest of his creation. Some 3,000 years later, King David, marveling at the majesty of God, wrote in Psalm 8, What is man that you are mindful of him? You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So the question is then, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Well, simply put, it means that God created men and women to be a reflection of himself, meaning that although imperfectly, we share in God's nature. From creation, God shared with man some of his, what we call, communicable divine attributes. Uh, Those attributes he shares with us, the ability to love, to have compassion, and to communicate, to name only a few. And these allow us to have a very unique and personal, intimate relationship with each other, and more importantly, with God that has not afforded the rest of his creation. And because all human beings are created in the image of God, it is imperative that we view each other as created equals, treating each other with respect and dignity as co-bearers of God's image, an image that cannot be diminished, not by gender, not by race, and not by disability. The question then rises... When does a person assume the image of God? Or stated in another way, when does life begin? And all other arguments notwithstanding, the truth of God's word makes it clear that life begins at conception, making even the unborn little image bearers of God. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty more in a moment, but that is the bottom, the baseline of all of this, and all of uh, struggling, by the way, Our focus today is on disability, but friends, God's sovereignty and the answer of God's sovereignty is covered at all, suffering, struggling, everything. The answers are the same. God's sovereignty gives purpose to it all. Because God is sovereign over all creation, because he is the giver and sustainer of all life, God is obviously sovereign over conception. Psalm 139, psalm of praise to the sovereignty of God. It speaks to the intimate relationship that God has purposefully established with all mankind as he personally, purposefully established with all mankind as he personally creates each and every person, giving them life in the womb. Verses 13 to 16. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. We also know that life begins at conception, as the Bible refers to both both the born and the pre-born as babies, as children, 
not just fetus or embryo, as babies, as children, giving them full personhood. Genesis 25:21 tells us that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, conceived, and the children struggled within her. This is pre-birth. Luke 141, when Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist, heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And of course, Mary is said in Luke 25 to be, again, not with a fetus, not with an embryo, but with child. There are even instances where the unborn children is known by God, obviously, and even named by God. The Lord told the prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Zechariah, the husband of Elizabeth and father of John the Baptist, was told by God that he would have a son who would be named John. And Mary was told by the angel, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. All this and more make it clear biblically, and that's the only thing that matters, biblically, that life begins at conception, that the unborn child is not a something, but a someone. Giving even the newest and the smallest unborn child dignity and sanctity, yes, as an image bearer of God. So how important, if it's not obvious, how important are we, man, men and women, to God? Well, human life is so precious, so valuable to our loving Lord that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, who was both conceived and born in the likeness of men, being, formed in human, uh, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even on a cross. So if God is so mindful of man, as David wrote, that he would sacrifice his only son to provide a way to eternal life with him, then we must treat every person, born or unborn, male or female, white, black, or brown, able or disabled, with dignity, grace, and respect that all human life affords. As members and attenders here of Gold Country Baptist Church, we want you to know this is our belief statement. It's Article 17, Roman numerals, Statement of Faith. It reads in part, We teach the dignity and sanctity of all human life, including the preborn, the aged, physically and mentally challenged, and every other stage or condition from conception through natural death. We teach every person as created in God's image must be afforded compassion, love, kindness, respect, and dignity. Eric, do that. Okay. The third point here is sovereign. God is sovereign over disability because that is our foundation. Pastor Phil recently completed our series on the attributes of God, as you remember, and one of those attributes is God's sovereignty. By God's sovereignty, we mean that he is in absolute control over all things. And if we think it through, to be God, God must be sovereign over all things. R.C. Sproul was fond of saying that even if one rogue molecule in the universe is out of God's control, then God is not God. That presents us with a dilemma. If God is truly sovereign then he must also be sovereign over disability. And that naturally leads to the question, as sovereign God, why does he allow disability and suffering? I don't have to tell you. Those are huge questions. They've already spawned thousands of sermons, books, conferences, and certainly in our short time, we won't be able to cover that well this morning, but we certainly can't just walk by it either. We can't ignore it. So let's talk about the good news of God's sovereignty and disability and struggles, and pain, and suffering. And it is good news. Friends, if God is not sovereign over all disability, if he's not sovereign over all suffering, there is no purpose in it. And if there's no purpose in it, we have no hope. So first, is God truly sovereign over disability? And the answer is a definite yes. As we spoke of earlier, as we read in Exodus 4, how God called Moses to go before Pharaoh and demand to let the Israelites go. And in his reluctance, Moses complained to the Lord, actually in fear, complained to the Lord, verse 10, I am not eloquent, I am slow of speech and tongue. Then in verse 11, God makes his definitive rebuttal 
to Moses' complaint. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who's made him mute? Or deaf? Or seeing? Or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So here God not, asserts his sovereignty, and he takes responsibility for Moses' speech issues, and by inference, all disability. Notice, though, that God does not apologize for it, nor does he take the blame for it, which means we are not to blame God either, as we often do. All sickness, imperfection, disease, and death are symptoms of original sin. Romans 5.12 reminds us that sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. God created Adam and Eve with communicable attributes we spoke of earlier, including the ability to reason and volition, which is the capacity of conscious choice. They were given free access to everything in the garden with only one prohibition, that they not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and if they did, God clearly warned them that they would die. But they ignored God's warning and chose to eat the fruit, and with that, sin, disease, death, and disability entered into the world. Now, in his righteous judgment, God, God, or in his righteous judgment, God removed them from the perfection of the garden and relocated them into a world that was now tainted by sin. As the righteous and just God, he could have just let sin take its natural course, would have been the swift destruction of man. But instead, God shows them and all mankind his grace. Instead, out of his steadfast love for his people, God in his sovereign power has chosen to allow but restrain the effects of sin and death for a time. He is still sovereign over it. Until his perfect will and his ultimate purpose for all of this for man is complete. And here is that good news of God's sovereignty. The sovereign creator and sustainer of the universe, as we read in Ephesians 1.10, has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things together in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and on earth. That time when he will gather all of his people together, when he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things will have passed away. So we take heart, knowing that the time is coming when Jesus will do away with every evil and suffering that ever existed. That is the sure promise to every believer in Jesus Christ. However, until then, we all must live in an imperfect world. However, we find our hope in God's sovereignty in that through it all, he is in sovereign control over every aspect of our lives, every Day And if he is in sovereign control, he will give it purpose, eternal purpose. Going back to Psalm 139, great psalm of God's sovereign, and an intimate relationship that he has with his people. We've already read from verses 13 and 14 that each one of us was knit by God in our mother's womb, and that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made. He gave us life in his image. And he has not left the glory of creation, his image bearers, to wander around all alone until he returns. We are told in the opening verses that our loving God constantly searches us. He knows us. He knows you. And put that in perspective. The creator God knows you personally. He knows you better than you know you. Wherever he has put you, in whatever capacity you may have, he knows you better than you know you. He knows you when you he knows you when you he knows when you sit up and uh, sit down and rise up. He knows your thoughts. He knows your every step. He knows your every word before you speak it. And then it says in verse five, "You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand on me." That is the promise of God's protection that He holds us in, holds His people in. And in verse 16, we read this, In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. It's a very poetic way of assuring us that God is intimately involved in every aspect of your day. Every minute, in all the lives of his people, from conception until death, which gives, again, sanctity, dignity, meaning, and purpose to all persons in all circumstances, in all stages of life. And think of this, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, Ephesians 1, 4 tells you that you were chosen 
in him, in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of time, even before you were conceived. In love, he predestined you for adoption to himself as a son through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory. That means that God has created you just as you are to be you. And more importantly, he created you just as you are to be his. So how great is God's sovereignty in your life? In just a couple minutes remaining here, consider just a couple ways in which God's sovereignty manifests itself in the lives of his people touched by disability and again by inference, by any struggle and uh, suffering in the life we may have. First of all, God's sovereignty over disability calms the hearts, minds, and fears. Those touched by disability very often struggle with troubling thoughts and fears that they are somehow responsible for their situation. We hear questions like, did I do something to cause this? Am I an accident? Is my child a mistake? And trust me, these are painful, painful questions. These painful questions are often accompanied by great anguish and tears. And if left unanswered, can bring deep depression and anxiety that is in itself disabling. And it robs us of the joy of life and even destroys relationships. However, the sovereignty of God, even over our greatest of limitations, is the assurance that those with disabilities, those who are struggling, are not mistakes. Rather, they are lovingly and purposefully created in God's image for his purpose. So if that's you here this morning, my friend, you are not an accident. You are an intention. You are an intention of God. Some disabilities are caused by various kinds of accidents. It can also cause tremendous guilt and blame. I'm guessing that Mephibosheth's nurse struggled with the fact that she may have dropped the king's grandson, disabling both feet. Some disabilities are the, road of, uh, are the result of sinful lifestyles and behavior, such as reckless anything, alcohol, drug abuse that destroy mind and body and result in the birth of drug-addicted babies. However, the sovereignty of God says that he understands and stands ready to assuage unnecessary guilt. The message is that God is no less sovereign over the accident than he was had the accident never occurred. And he is ready to forgive when sin is the issue. Forgiving all who come to him in humble repentance, in faith, in belief, knowing that he can and does use even these tragic situations for his own purposes and for good of those of us who are going through it. I'd like to address parents of children with a disability. Take this to heart from Sue and I as well, although it applies to others as well. Parents, if you're struggling with the prospect of your child's future, put your trust in God's sovereignty. If God was sovereign over the conception, if he was sovereign over the birth of your child, then he is sovereign over his or her future as well. Remember the words of Jeremiah 29, 11, that apply to both you and your child, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And in Christ, there is hope in disability. Secondly, God's sovereignty gives a purpose and meaning to disability. And as discussing the sermon with Sue, she made all the, the all-important points. She said, God... She said it again this week, God has a plan for every believer that far exceeds our limitations. Wise statement. And that clearly is borne out in Scripture. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that we are his workmanship. There is God's creation, created in Jesus Christ for good works. There is the purpose, which God prepared beforehand. There is God's sovereignty, that we should walk in them. There is our call to service. One of those purposes that he calls us to is to be light in the life of others abled or disabled, wherever we are, showing the love and compassion of Christ to others in need, to encourage and to offer hope, to be an example of what it means to overcome in Christ to others who are struggling, and to show God's grace in adversity and even in the process to redeem lost souls. 
God allows disability, and he did so for a reason, and he will use those disabilities for the sake of his kingdom. Consider this. If God is sovereign over disability, God is sovereign over ability as well. And I don't mean the difference between two individuals. I mean within each one of us. We all have strengths and weaknesses, and God often uses our abilities alongside our disabilities. Often he uses our disabilities to bring out our strongest gifts, our strongest abilities. He uses the disabilities to reveal our strengths. We're reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that in Christ, when I am weak, I am what? I'm strong. And if God uses our disabilities, they are not disabilities at all. Rather, they are truly instruments in the, in the hands of a sovereign God. And Johnny is a good example. In his sovereignty, Johnny has been in a wheelchair for more than five decades. She survived breast cancer twice and COVID. But that is no hindrance to the Lord, is it? He used her accident and her wheelchair to strengthen and focus Johnny's many gifts and talents that have, been, have brought hope, joy, and meaning through the gospel of Jesus Christ to thousands. Which brings us to this point. Scripture tells us that every man, woman, and child, including those with special needs, have been given spiritual gifts with which to build up the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.7 says, To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And the common good is for the church. And those gifts vary widely. Can be teaching all the other gifts, but I have seen so often in the disabled that we work with the gift of a smile, the gift of acceptance. Um, ask parents that have raised disabled children the blessings that they are. Maybe they can't communicate in any other way, but they communicate through the eyes and through a smile, and that is a gift. It is a gift to us. It was a gift to me. And that means that God has a place, a purpose. He has a role for every member of the body of Christ. Every member is equally necessary to the body if it is to function efficiently and to grow, and when it does, it brings honor to God, which is what we do. So in God's sovereignty, he uses our disabilities and our limitations to serve others and to serve the church. And in his most intimate relationship with us, his desire to grow is his desire to grow us into the image of Christ, and therefore God uses our disabilities for our personal spiritual growth and well-being. And we see how this fit into the life of the Apostle Paul, going back to Scripture. Sometimes he uses our struggles for, uh, to call us to focus on Christ at his conversion in Acts 9. The risen Christ appears to Paul through a brilliant light that blinded Paul for three days, giving Paul the time to contemplate his calling in faith and uh, his, his calling to faith and coming ministry. Other times the Lord gives our disabilities to cause us to rely solely on him. In 2 Corinthians 12, we read of Paul's infamous thorn in the flesh that the Lord refused to remove. And Paul knew why. Verse 7, he understood that it was there to keep me from becoming conceited. And you remember the Lord's answer for refusing to remove the thorn? He said, my grace is sufficient for you. How? For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul faced adversity after adversity throughout his life and ministry, including chronic eye problem we talked about. And as in Paul's life, God uses difficulties and even disabilities in our lives to mature our faith, to sanctify us, and that is to grow us more into the likeness of Christ. Paul's conclusion in all of this, Philippians 4.13, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and, uh, and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. As God is sovereign over disability, those disabilities have eternal value through Jesus Christ. Paul wrote, we read it earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, for this light momentary uh, affliction, and granted when we go through affliction, it doesn't feel light and momentary. This is spoken in the terms of eternity, to be sure. But here is our hope. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because the things that are seen are transient. The things of the world, the things that are unseen, are eternal. And we remember, because we use it often, all of us, Romans 8, 28, that everything, everything works for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we see what God is doing here. We see the curse on mankind in Genesis, and God must be true to that curse. He is true to himself. And yes, he could have taken us away from that if he had chosen to, but he didn't. He chose instead to grow us through our adversity. In Romans 8, 28, and verses like 2 Corinthians 4, what we see is God's blessing through his curse. Yes, we are still subject to the difficulty of sin and death in that first sin in the garden, but God takes that and uses it for your benefit and his glory. That is a loving and sovereign God. So, and finally, just said it, God uses disability to bring him glory. You remember the blind man in John 9? If you haven't read that, read it. I love this guy. He's really cool. And uh, he is bold. (laughs) Jesus healed a man born blind. And the story encapsulates much of what we've been talking about. We read that like Bartimaeus, the man was a beggar, an outcast. But still, Jesus stopped, touched the man's eyes, anointed them with mud, we're told. And out of compassion, he gives the man sight for the first time in his life. And then in mistaken theology of disability, Jesus' disciples asked the question still heard today in one form or another, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he might be born blind? Jesus' answer is telling as we consider his sovereignty and divine purpose. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is the hope for today in disability and eternally, of course, in Christ. So what do we do with this? Let me leave you with just some practical things. I encourage you again to see Roberta at the table and uh, pick up some information, talk to her. She's a wonderful advocate for the disabled. And uh, uh, some of these things, talk to Sue and I. We are always here uh, uh, by phone. If you have any questions uh, for those in the church or out that are struggling with disabilities, we would love to help you with that. But there are some basic things we don't have time to really cover today. But So let me just uh, bullet point through a couple things. The first one is the, the, well, first of all, learn. Learn about disability. What does it mean to be autistic? What does it mean to be a parent of an autistic child? Autism doesn't go away at childhood. What does it mean to be an autistic adult? What does it mean to have spina, be born with spina bifida or be to the parents of spina bifida? Ask Jared. Ask Lisa. What does it mean to have Down syndrome? No. Ask these folks, what can we do? How can I best serve you? How can I be your friend? How can we better be brothers and sisters in Christ and then fulfill those needs? There's a difference in my my thinking between disability and special needs. It's the same, and they're both appropriate. But disability speaks to what isn't. Special needs speaks to what we must be meeting as a church, what we can be meeting as brothers and sisters in Christ. Special needs. Have the compassionate heart of Christ for those with disabilities. We've talked about that. But have compassion, not pity. There's a sense of judgment when we pity. There's a sense of being over when we pity. Compassion brings us alongside as equals to serve and love. Care for those in the body. Care for those outside the body. And know that that a a person with, uh, with a disability is not their disability. I still hear it even in the medical community. Well, he's a spina bifida. No, he's not. He's Jared. They are not their disability. They are persons like you and I that were born with a disability or had an accident and have been disabled. So treat them that way. Think of them that way, equal and gifted in every respect. Encourage them to use their gifts. Invite others to come. Compel them to come to this church. We will find a way to accommodate them. Share the gospel of Christ and care for them. And if you see a need, fill it. Somebody comes in the back door you weren't expecting. That's when we know how we're doing. So if somebody comes in you're not expecting and has a disability, how are we going to deal with that? So I will give you a quick answer. Ask them. Ask them how we can take care of them. Don't tell them where to sit. Ask them where to sit. 
and serve them and serve them well. And we welcome them not as an addition. <coughs> Excuse me. This is not an additional ministry somehow. It is inclusion. We are including them in the body of Christ where they need to be. Just as we are including each other this morning, we include them as the body of Christ. Because ultimately, it's not because of difference. It's because of relationship. And that is fellowship. Mutual fellowship in Christ. So again, I, I encourage you to see Roberta at the back table. I'll be out at the bridge, at least until we go down to Super Senior Sunday. So I we ask for your prayer for Dominican Republic. There are, other, there are three other trips going out in the next week. Uh, not just... Uh, not just for the wheelchairs, as you know, we've talked about it before. Um, it, even Johnny and Friends says that it's not about the wheels. The wheels, the walkers, the canes, wheel, and uh, are all a method to get to the gospel. And that's, what we, that's why we go as the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for us. Pray for Sue and I. We were brought in late in the Dominican Republic. There's much to do in the next 20 days, however many, uh, to do and get that done before we can go. And uh, pray for the people that will be on the team. Pray for the good people of the Dominican Republic that the Lord will bring to us, that they will hear the gospel. Oh, yes, and they'll receive mobility as well. So join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. I so appreciate this wonderful congregation who allows us the time to speak of this most important uh, issue. First and foremost, your sovereignty, because that governs it all, but also the need to care for your people, to love them without prejudice, without fear, without hesitation, taking the chance, being bold, and reaching out to those in the church and those outside to bring them in so that they can be loved and cared for as the family of God and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, we do give you our morning. We pray, that Lord, you impress upon each of our hearts how we can do that better, all to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.